Gaelic, and I'm just kind of like following up with Ralph and Steve and Kitty from that group. But they actually have really good music being produced and heard across Australia. Come and speak to them where you live. Come where the COVID is. Just go. King, chapter 2, verse 8. Jerusalem has stumbled and Judah has fallen because each and the priests are against the Lord. Wow, amazing. And Isaiah turns up on the scene. King Uzziah is at the end of a very successful reign. He's had 52 years enjoying political, economic, and military success. But toward the end of his reign, into his head, he starts believing fresh reports about himself, and he starts thinking that maybe he is the Messiah King. And he gets worse. We read in 2 Chronicles 26, when he was strong, he grew proud, he was king. For he was unfaithful to the Lord his God, and entered the temple of the Lord to burn incense on the altar of incense. Now on the face of it, that doesn't sound so bad, does it? First time you read that, you might go, ah, it's just one of the problem is that he was a king and not a priest. And it was very important that priests were the ones who represented the people, went in and prayed for the king, actively offered incense and and sacrificed for the king. It was very important that they did that because God was so holy, or is so holy and so glorious, that if he wandered in and bothered him, he would be disregarding his priests and really was going to kill them. Are you reading that holy? Are you reading that holy? And so when Uzziah swaggers in, he's completely disregarding the glory and holiness of God. Uzziah warns us then, chapter 4, verse 13, that we can simply stop trusting in the mere human that Uzziah and the rest of Judah suffered is not enough. It's a, it's a human problem. It's always been there. Every single breath we take is a gift from God. We have to remember that. We can look at other kings in our lives, and they might look shiny and good and nice, and look, look like they're going to give us happiness. But you see, none of them will last. Even the good ones. chapter 5, we see that uh, Isaiah ends with this particular parting sentence. If you follow after those things that I said, you will not end up at the end of a life with death. He said, if one looks as a lamb that is only bought from the flock, even his son, 
between chapter 5 and chapter 6, there's almost this expectancy pause. And I'll just say pause with this word. If you're used to reading the Bible, you'll expect a pause. Because God doesn't leave us in darkness and in suspense. He breaks in with his light and he brings his promise and reveals it to his people. So let's read. Chapter 5. We begin chapter 6 and we see the Lord entering the temple. Let's read chapter 6, verses 1 through 7. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings, with two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost in the temple, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken to burnish the altar and the cup and vessel, and said, Behold, this is what the Holy One of Israel Uzziah died, Isaiah was taken up and to have visions of the throne of another God. He weepeth and said to himself, Upon his throne, the comparison between Uzziah, that calamitous king, who ended his life in pride and along with it, the nation was headed for destruction. This was just so stark compared to the king that Isaiah now sees before him on the throne of God. Around the throne, impressive angel-like seraphim are singing, holy, holy, holy. It's hard to grasp where that was in the ancient world. But it would take rightness to hold him. See, God is so glorious that we can't look at him because he's so bright in his glory. The radiance of his glory is too much for us. So in in that word holy, we see that he was bright and radiant and lifted up. But then it also means there is a separate reputation, separateness to the seraphim that is revealed. And we, we see that God is completely different from them. He has never sinned. something completely epic about God. And the seraphim don't just say holy, they say holy, holy, holy. Now in ancient Hebrew repeating words was a way of of marking brutality or contempt or fear of punishment. Surely it would just be holy, holy in the sense of holiness. But God is so holy that he is given here a super superlative. He is holy, holy, holy. His holity is too difficult for us to understand. He is more holy than we could ever begin to imagine. 
And then the seraphims continue, the whole earth is full of his glory. Isaiah sees that it's not just in these moments that God delivers his glory. There's always a, a, a constant and continual those that are raised around that we've completely mentioned and the Assyrians especially looked as if they were going to come and wipe them away wipe them off the face of the planet and yet even in that moment God is reminding us all his glory never fades it will never die it will be upheld it will stand sovereignly present in heaven every day there is not one moment in your life not, no matter how dark it seems, that God is not glorified. So give him glory and do nothing that is needless. Because he's always faithful to his work for us. Sometimes we have a phrase that maybe it's not quite as as a uh, dramatic a sense, but uh, it's an experience that uh, it can be easy for us to to think that God is only experiencing His glory at that moment because we feel it in in something else. But actually, we must remember if we want to be faithful people, we must remember that that is always true no matter how we feel that he is before God's glory Isaiah and all the senses tremble before the face is shaken so unlike Isaiah he's not frightened he's not running around this temple God, he says, woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Can you see who God really is? Can you see him in all his glory? That's when we realize who we really are. It's like dust in the wind, basically, in some context. But as I was said a moment ago, God isn't just seeing us here, he's also raised us as high priests. This is the royal priest. And that is why God can instruct the seraphim to take a piece of burning coal and take it to the unclean lips of Isaiah and touch those lips. And what's happening there is it's not, it's not some punishment, he's purifying his lips. He is taking a burning coal from the altar, the altar in the temple. And that's why it's important we know it's the temple. Because in the temple, this altar would have been incessantly burning. And that is where the sacrifices and the blood offerings would have been taken. And God would have had a pungent aroma to the house from the altar, the burning coal. So 
And so we're not cold taken from the altar. Isaiah can see that although we have this moment in history where Judah looks like it's it's in trouble, where Jerusalem, the holy city, looks like it's in trouble, where the people of God look like they're in trouble, God is still good. God is still working. still must provide a sacrifice that is actually pleasing to the Lord. Otherwise, it's a symbolic one that is displeasing to the Lord. Zechariah uh, 1 verse 11, sorry, says, what, uh, what to me is a multitude of your sacrifices, says the Lord of hosts. I have had enough of burnt offerings of rams and fat of wild pigs. I do not delight in the blood of bulls or of lambs or of goats. The animal sacrifices slaughtered in the temple and burned on the altar are never enough to satisfy salvation. It was always more than religious practice. It was about the heart. God wanted their hearts. He wanted them to have faith in his promises to provide a true sacrifice, a sacrifice that actually takes away their sin. shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Zion, and a branch from the root of the Lord. And the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the Spirit of counsel and might, the Spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear, but with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. Strike the earth and water his mouth, and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist, and faithfulness the belt of his loins. The wolf shall lie down with the lamb, and the leopard shall lie down with the young goat, and the calf and the lion and the fattened calf together, and the child, the little child shall lead them. The cows and the bears shall graze, the young shall lie down together, and the lion shall be small like a rock. The nursing child shall play comfortable with the cobra, and the weaned child shall put his hand on the mother's breast. They shall not hurt or destroy in the day of destruction. The earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. In that day, the root of Jesse will still stand as a signal to them. Then shall the nations inquire.
Lord and Savior have just been annihilated by the Assyrians by 770 BC. This happens with the city of Samaria and continuing on until they are wiped out. Then Judah is a mess. And that's the Isaiah coming out, especially with the threat of Assyrian invasion over on the horizon. And the people are asking, what is going on here? God, are your promises going to come true? Where is our king? When's he going to come and rescue us? We are desperate. Where are you? Judah has become a stump heap. And it's a stump heap. Where are you, God? So Lindsay and I went to view a house um, that we had moved into um, a few years ago. And we included in the trip. We went around and loved the house. But one of the striking features of the house is that the end of the stone bar stump and a really big note to the house in the middle so we we loved it and not just for that reason but we loved the house and we bought the house and then when we came around then to move in again we got around the back of the house and the house was empty maybe Lindsay had thought it would be a good idea to check it out and instead of having these beautiful big views lots of light and greenery but lots of people and a no fence looking down the road it stunk like this so from this beautiful garden this kind of desolate place and that really is what God is saying about Judah that it's going to become this stump and it's already become quite a stump and prospering a decade earlier after we moved in though spring arrived and we started to notice out the back that lifted little shoots were coming up and we soon realized they were coming out of the roots and out of the stump of these trees now by the time we left a couple of years later there was still one of those little shoots had become a thick tree still had a long way to go but we stayed there the Middle East was going through this power struggle it doesn't look good kings are jostling for power and position but despite that
about moving the people to the place where we live. So as you go through Isaiah, look out for these particular moments of fulfillment. And there are three moments of fulfillment in the promise that is given to his people. I think it's helpful for us to think of these three moments as points in the horizon of the prayer of Isaiah. Just to unlock the idea of moments of fulfillment. A friend in Glasgow called Johnny, and he was a mountain biking shepherd. And every so often, I was a youth leader in a, in a previous church. Every so often, I'd phone him up and say, Johnny, these guys are mental. Let's push them up a hill so they never get to the last one. And he would crack a sweat with joy. And so we would fill up a trailer with as many bikes as we could, and he would finish it in under an hour. We'd drop him off in somewhere where someone had already got their specimens, and he would arrive just doing off an hour's sleep. And so, um, one thing he went out, and he had these boys with him who were a bit nuts, um, but one of the poor guys said, I just feel myself falling off. Just coming off, he was off it more than he was on it. And after a while, Johnny came to me some friends and said, look, here's your problem. You are cycling along, and every time you see something that you think would be crashing into, you look straight at it. And when you look straight at it, subconsciously, you look forward. But instead, what you've got to do is along the trail through like this. Look at that point and keep your eyes on it. Don't look forward. Jesus said that to us, or John said that to us, at the event of the resurrection of Lazarus. Don't look forward. The same is true for us. We are given fixate our eyes on it, and we must do that as we go along. And we see Isaiah will say the same thing as he did there. The first point to look at for them was in their generation, a king in Judah who, like David, trusted in God. Now, unfortunately, that wasn't Isaiah's son Ahaz. We'll find out in the book a little bit. But it turned out to be um, his son He was the first born brother of Israel. Now, he was a good king, but he wasn't perfect. And he wasn't able to restore Jerusalem the way that it truly displayed his character. So although there was one moment of rejoicing here, there actually will be three. There'll be another moment coming after that. And that's where we get our classic definition of rejoicing. Chapter 7 says, Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and shall call his name Emmanuel. And in chapter 9 it says, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Emmanuel means God with us. 750 years before he's given Isaiah the prophecy. Folks, your eyes are truly fixed. You will have rejoicing. He will be born to a virgin, and he won't be like the other kings who will let you down. This king truly is wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace. Let's call him prince of peace. It's to save 
Sacrifices that ended up on the cross of Temple Pool were not an option. The sacrifice of Emmanuel moved in from Emmaus to fill in the corrupted, incomprehensible blunders of worldly sacrifice. God himself assumed the architecture of every single one of the sacrifices that God himself made. And on the altar of Calvary, trust in Jesus, if you put your trust in God as Isaiah did in that promise he was given in the context of election, you too will enter into moments of vulnerability and real desperation. You too. And guess what? And when he was on that cross at Calvary, just, on, just before he, he made this last Isaiah revealed that God was sending a good king into this generation, and not only did he uh, promise a king who would come as a, a baby into the world and die in his place as the heir of David, he also promised another king, and he happened to be David himself. He was going to come, and he was going to—he's going to come. Jerusalem will be complete one day, and it will be the center of a new creation. And at the heart of that creation will be a tree of life. And by that tree of life, streams of living water will flow. And that tree of life will remind us that in Jesus, who was the fulfillment of David's promise of the shoot coming out of the stump of Jesse, we have life, and life to the full forever. That new creation will come for us when Jesus returns for us and he takes us up into glory. So although he came humbly, there will be a moment in the future when he comes and he declares that everything is his and he makes it all right again. Everything will be good again. In every way, it will be glorious. Zion will have its true king sins and we'll be able to walk in the bright light of holy justice. Let's not be ruled by calamitous kings. Let's look to the constant king who is forever glorious. He will never be judged. He will return for us in peace and come in power and judge us and declare the kingdom of God on the earth. And there will never
Jesus, and meet us now. 